Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we're finishing up this discussion we've been having on how to shop for insurance. And we're going to be talking about life, health, and disability coverage, and how to make sure you're getting the best value. Now, we are going to walk you through each of these types of insurance that you want to have and show you the exact tips to get the most coverage for the least cost. I mean, that's what we all want. We want to make sure that we're saving money but getting the best coverage. And we're going to talk about how that means the best value and show you the best perspective to look at it from. We want you to feel protected and secure and have that confidence and peace of mind so you're not in a negative position, but we also don't want to have you giving up any more dollars each month than you need to in monthly expenses. So we're your hosts, Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. Welcome, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. I hope you're having a great day. This uh this insurance discussion is always very interesting, and I hope people uh, find some value in it today. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and set the stage. So right now we are talking about how to save money, and we've covered in the last two episodes that it's not exactly what you would think. Now, sometimes this idea that we want to have the cheapest thing, whatever we're shopping for, can be really misleading because it can end up costing more. And I know, Bruce, you brought a wonderful example about your grandmother and her saying about if you spend more money on clothes now, you'll end up spending less money on clothes over the course of your lifetime, right? Yeah. 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 She always said, the more you spend on clothes, the less you spend on clothes. And it was, it was really that simple, in it, but it stuck with me for a long time. Exactly. And I really like that perspective of saying, how do you make sure that you're getting the best value for your money? Because we don't just want to have the cheapest thing that's going to break tomorrow, but we also don't want to spend more than we need to. So we don't want you as a consumer of insurance, as a person going through your business life, you're wanting to have this protection set up in your business and in your personal life. You want to be able to thrive and flourish and have the peace of mind to create more in your business and create more value for people so that you can increase your business income and increase your personal economy and thrive and flourish in every way. But we want you to be empowered in the financial choices you make. And I think all too often people come into financial decisions and questions and decision making and they say, well, I I don't know what to do. So I'm going to have to just trust someone. And then you're still not really sure that you've made the best decision or that you spent money the right way. And you can end up with that buyer's remorse and just feeling like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And we just really don't want you to be in that blind position or just in the passenger seat of your financial life. I mean, you went into business so that you could take control of your life and your destiny. And and that's the same way we want you to feel when you are shopping for insurance. It's the same way, same perspective we bring as we're talking about every area of controlling your financial life. So here is your guide to confident insurance shopping. So let's zoom out real quick. In the survival to significance cash flow system, first we have your foundation where you're keeping as much of the money you make. And this is powerful because you have more control then. Next, on the second stage or second level, you are then protecting that money. And finally, after you've been keeping more and protecting that money, then we're going to focus in the third level on increasing and making more money. So insurance really fits in that protection segment. So in level two, and we want to move you from a position of having risk to feeling safe, regardless of what type of circumstances you might face. So this is the third in a mini series on how to shop for insurance and get the best value. In the first one, we talked about seven tips to save on insurance. In part two, we talked about home and auto insurance. And today we are covering how to save money on life, health, and disability insurance. So Bruce, let's go ahead and dive in. Yeah, I think the uh, the first thing anybody needs to really think about is that, and we've, we've touched on this over and over but I'm going to take it a little bit different perspective here is that we often focus on price and not the value you were getting for, we are getting for that price. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because we are in more of a information overload 
world now, it's very easy to get a price on something. But and, oh, sure. and that has caused that has caused the every industry to to focus on price rather than focus on the value you get. And so what I'm saying is that you would call you would call somebody up for uh, a car, you call somebody up for um, you know bananas, <laughs> you call somebody up <laughs> for a couch, and they're all going to say. The first thing that they're going to come out of their mouth 80% of the time is, well, we have uh, couches that range from $799 to $1199, or we have cars, you know, in, uh, Chevy Impalas that are uh, low of $17,999. That's almost the first thing they come out that comes out. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't ask you those value questions like, uh, uh, well, what kind of couch were you expecting? What kind of setting are you trying to uh, have in your home? Is this for a commercial? Right. Is this a commercial situation? Because you know the couch you would put it into your your children's play area would be much different than the couch you would put into a living area where you would be you know have guests over. Uh, oh, absolutely! And so to focus on the immediately, but because of the commoditization of everything. People tend to uh, go right to price. So I think that price obviously is important because that's the bottom line of exchanging value, exchange money for value. But we have to understand that the value of what you're receiving is going to be different every single time. So when we look at health insurance, I'd just like to start because we're going to start in health insurance. This is an ever excuse me. This is an ever-changing and frustrating market. The uh, <laughs> you're talking, yes, yes. And the, this is the, the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, had great intentions, but it has turned the entire industry into turmoil. And it and we're not going to argue the political ramifications. We're just going to mm-hmm. we're just going to tell you the facts that it, it has actually made things a lot more complicated. And, and there's no getting around that for a majority, uh, even though it is, it, more people are actually covered, so it's cheaper for those people that are covered, the majority of people, the, the uh, increased premiums have been more than has been in the previous years. Oh, it's, it's tremendous. I mean, just the cost in premium has gone up. I mean, I would, I would say it's skyrocketed. And for a family who's saying, well, now this, I have three kids and the cost of my health insurance, if I'm not on a group plan can easily be more than your mortgage. It's, it's a really frustrating situation. So it's a big chunk of cash that is going out the door. If you say, I do want health insurance. So um, Bruce, let's just say, okay, what is the very, very basic level? What is health insurance actually doing? Because I think this is a really important part of the discussion. So we can say, how do we figure out what the cost means to my personal economy? And how do I make sure that I get the best value? So yeah. what is health insurance? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So within any insurance, we're, 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 tra- we're transferring risk of, of, a medi- of medical expenditures to a particular com- company that's willing to take on those risks. And we call those insurance companies. So uh, they they have a lot of statistics on that, yes. Yeah, so basically you're saying, okay, if I got sick, the insurance company is gonna pay for that. I mean, at a a really high level, you're saying, Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna have to pay out of pocket for my medical concerns. And now that really begs this question. Well, am I going to use it? I I hear this question all the time. Am I actually gonna use it? Well, if, if you maybe are healthy and you're managing your health really well and you say, I've never been to the doctor in the last eight years, I don't have any prescriptions, I'm not in a position where I have any surgeries upcoming, I don't have any health conditions, why do I really need health insurance? And that can be something where a lot of times people say, well, you know, why do I really need to have this coverage? And we know the penalty for not being insured is actually going away, right? In next year, 2019. Yeah, once again, this is the confusing part. I think the penalty is still there, but they're just not going to have a monetary penalty for it, which is, <clears throat> which is kind of a weird situation. But yes, it's basically, there is no monetary penalty 
for not having health insurance, which is part of the, which was a part, is still part of the Health Care Act, which is a very right. so, confusing. Yeah. So then it brings it down to, well, now, since I can decide again, do I want to have this coverage or not? It becomes a purely financial decision saying, is this worth it in my personal economy to give all this money over in premium to put health insurance in place? And I think at the core of that question is saying, I want to have that peace of mind so that if something were to happen, that somebody else is taking on that burden of risk. And it really comes down to transferring the catastrophic. So when you're in a position where you say health insurance right now has no cap, there's um, there's something called a max out of pocket, mm-hmm. which is the most you could pay out of your pocket. But the insurance company would pick up everything after that. So if you had a $2 million claim, that is going to be paid after you hit your max out of pocket. The rest goes on the burden of the health insurance company. And that's really powerful for you because you know you're not exposed to unlimited risk if something bad were to happen, right? Yeah, you know, the, the, there is, um, you have, this is part of what you have to shop and you have to shop obviously the premium, but the premium compared to the deductible. And then the deductible is what you are paying um, until you actually hit uh, or complete your deductible. And then you have what's called coinsurance. And the coinsurance can be 10% of the cost or 20% of the cost or 30% mm-hmm. of the cost or 50%, whatever you set that up. And then I believe what, what you're trying to relay, and, and it is different for every insurance company, is that there's a, a, a yearly max and there's also a lifetime max on some of these policies. So you're absolutely right. You know, and then there's an out-of-pocket max. Um, so it says, uh, like, I have a $7,000 deductible, and my out-of-pocket max is $79.95, I believe it is. And so- Right, and that's for the year. For, that's for the year. So I know mm-hmm. that um, I, I'm at risk for $7,995, and my wife is at risk for $7,000. Uh, $995. Anything anything after that, the insurance company is at risk for. Right. So then a couple of the questions in in the decision-making that you would need to be thinking is, okay, so if I am going to use the coverage for things like co-pays, then let's go ahead and build those into the plan. However, putting those types of coverages in place where you have co-pays for doctor's office visits and for specialists and for prescriptions and co-pays for emergency room visits, those things will add to your premium so that your cost monthly goes up because essentially you are prepaying for services you may potentially use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so like we, um, we decided to lower our premiums by $600 a month instead of having a $1,500 deductible, we went to a $7,000 deductible but we save $7,200 over the course of the year. And that's because we, we mm-hmm. decided that we were going to try to maintain our health, be healthy, which maintain our lifestyle. And we also, this is the importance of savings from our previous episodes. We have savings set aside if we have to go all the way up to our deductible. And we put part of that savings into a, a, a health savings account, which I know we're going to talk about in just a little bit of time. So this overall understanding that the the cost of insurance is a combination of the premium, the deductible, the coinsurance, and the yearly out-of-pocket max, those four things really make up your decision-making process. Oh, that's absolutely right. And um, we don't do a lot of health insurance for people anymore. But when we were really looking at this, we would always analyze the total picture. If I hit my max out of pocket, and I'm paying the premiums for the course of the year, what is the best financial decision? And that's a question that is a financial uh, objective number you can arrive at. Yeah, Arch, the question- yeah, Arch Brokerage, our, our strategic alliance here in St. Louis does a great job in a uh, column form that really mm-hmm. shows people at the very bottom, here is the risk that you're taking on. And then, pe- Absolutely. And then people can make a decision, okay, I feel like I'm healthier, so I'm really I'm willing to take a little bit more risk to have some 
savings along that particular year. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we're looking at then, so in this big picture, and Bruce, I really love how you brought your personal circumstance to play because what we're looking at is here's the lay of the land. First, in health insurance, if you choose to take on health insurance, you pay the premium and the insurance company takes your medical risk. You have a deductible that you pay first, as Bruce mentioned. And then after that, if you hit your deductible, you pay your coinsurance. After the coinsurance, you get up to your max out of pocket. After that, the insurance company takes the rest. That's the big, big picture. Now, how do we minimize those costs? If we've chosen to transfer the risk to the insurance company, we have the peace of mind of knowing that we don't have to pay out of pocket or come up with the money or put it on a credit card or find some way to have medical um, payments that we make to the provider and be on a payment plan. I mean, medical costs are a huge deal. And for some people, it's a it's a humongous financial decision and often can put people into bankruptcy. So this is a really important reason to make sure that you've thought this through so that you're not in this exposed and liable position. But how do we save money when we're thinking about the health insurance? So here's a couple really quick points on that. And we've actually touched on all of them already. So I'm just going to bring them back to the surface. One is Bruce, as you talked about having savings in place. If you have the savings, you can afford to increase your deductible so that you're going to end up coming out of pocket for the smaller stuff and transferring the catastrophic risk to the insurance company. And that's going to lower your premium. Now, unfortunately, in today's environment, it's not as much lower as it used to be. There used to be a much bigger gap Mm -hmm. between low deductible plans and high deductible plans. And the cost used to be really significant change. But now almost all the plans have very similar premiums. And who knows what's going to happen in the future of health insurance, but build up those cash reserves so you can increase the deductible. And then Bruce, did you want to talk about HSAs at all just for a second and mention what they are? Or would you like me to cover that? Um, well, no, um, what we what people really need to know, I think for HSAs, and then you can, you can go ahead and and finalize this, is that it's the only thing that I know of, and I've talked to a lot of different people, that is is where you could put your money to be tax deductible and take it out tax-free if you take it out f- for things that are properly covered by HSA. It's the only thing. And, and mm-hmm. the reason, and the, and the number one thing that I find the reason people don't want to do it is they get it confused with an FSA, which many employers uh, actually offer to as an, a benefit. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the FSA is what some people refer to as use it or lose it. Yep, exactly. And and that and that is true. If you do not use it, um, you whatever money you have in it, you will lose it for the following year. HSAs, though, they actually roll over until into um, basically all the way to age sixty five, and then they just they they become a an individual retirement account. So it is yes. it is the nicest thing you can do. Now, you and I are big on controlling our money. The mm-hmm. the one negative about HSAs is you do lose control of the money. But what but a way that you can overcome that is and this is the way I do it, and my wife do we we do it is although we can put x amount of dollars in the HSA every year, we decide when and how we're going to do it. We don't. We do not do it systematically. We save the money outside the HSA. Then, if we have a health claim, we put the money into the HSA and then take it back out. Mm, uh, nice. Because a lot of people try to say, "Well, I want to put two hundred fifty dollars a month into my HSA," and then they do get to the end of the year, and then they they don't use it. And it's nice that it does roll over for medical expenses in the future but you do lose control of that money by not being able to access it without uh, without a penalty, just like an individual retirement account. Right. So let's just recap a couple things real quick. So HSA stands for Health Savings Account, and this is two parts. You have your health plan plus a savings account. There's two different tools. So you're still paying your premiums on your health insurance, and on the side, you can put money into a savings account, the health savings account portion, And this is money that will stay there until you need it for medical expenses. And part of, Bruce, what you're talking about, the control, is that you don't have investment control over where that money is going to be invested for you. 
but you also can only use it for qualified medical expenses, not just for anything you choose. So if you did have $20,000 sitting in your health savings account and you needed $20,000 to invest in a rental property, you're not going to be able to use that money for that. The other piece that you were um, contrasting was the FSA, which is a flexible spending account. So that's the use it or lose it money where the employer puts money usually into an account that you can spend on qualified medical expenses as well. Different scenario, but the health savings account is this idea that you can keep that money in the plan and, or in the savings account portion and then use it later in the future, maybe two, three years down the road if you had medical expenses. And one thing that I would also add to the piece that you said about not putting the money into the health savings account until you had an expense, there's really not a reason to put more in than what your deductible would be for that given year. Have the money somewhere else in another place where you control it and you can use it in the health savings account, but there's much more controlled ways that you can use to grow your money and access it for other purposes as well and utilize it more effectively. So the other thing that you can do to save money on health insurance is you can look at narrowing the network. So there used to be PPO plans and you could have in and out of network coverage. And still in some cases you can get a PPO. Sometimes an HMO is more effective because, or cost effective, you have a narrower range of doctors that are contracted within that um, health maintenance organization and you end up having a lower premium as a result. And even if you were to be out of state or out of network for an emergency, those are usually classified as in-network claims anyways. So those are a couple of ideas on how to save dollars. There's also some new legislation allowing sole proprietors to have group insurance, so to offer a employer-based health plan. And for what we've seen in 2018, employer-based health plans have saved people premium as opposed to getting an individual health plan. So just another um, consideration there, especially for business owners. If you have at least one employee this year, you're qualified for that. If you have just your just yourself next year, you'll have the ability for a group health plan. And then the last piece on that is focus on self-insuring for the small stuff, the things that are just annoying, the doctor office visit co-pays and things like that. If you're not going to be using that coverage on a regular basis and transfer the risk for the catastrophic coverage, that's going to keep more dollars in your pocket and in your control today. Yeah, and just to, just to finalize this, to show people how you can increase cash flow, is um, the the limit. I believe the limitations in two thousand, the contribution limitations in two thousand eighteen are thirty five hundred dollars per person uh, in a household. Uh, so it would be seven thousand dollars. And if you're in a, let's say a twenty four percent federal tax uh, bracket, then you would save sixteen hundred and eighty dollars on your taxes which would be equivalent to an additional $140 a month of cash flow. And that doesn't take in consideration what you would be saving on this, on the state side. So then, Mm -hmm. so then if a person looks at it and says, okay, my premium for my wife and myself was $940 a month because I put it into a $7,000 deductible. I have to take in consideration then if I put the $3,500 into the HSA that I am actually increasing my cash flow by $140 a month. So that $940 premium really only feels like $800 a month. Oh, that's and that's great. how you need to mm-hmm. walk through this to see what you're actually paying for your healthcare needs. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Bruce, that's actually brought up one other thought that I did want to share just briefly. And that is that often it's... <sighs> Because of the Affordable Care Act, sometimes people have written off more business expenses to show a lower income and be able to qualify for a subsidy. Now, we don't know what the subsidies are going to look like going forward, and I absolutely do not have a crystal ball, and I don't even want to guess what's going to happen in the future. But one thing we want to be careful of is it is good in your business to make more money. It is not a negative thing. And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to live in that scarcity of trying to say, well, I I need to shrink my income, not make any more money, because if I make more money, then I'm going to lose the premium and have to pay more for my health insurance. Yes, you will, but there's there's more value in creating more um, service and giving more of yourself to the world and in increasing your income, because then you just have a lot more options as a whole, even if there might be some added costs that go along with that. So I just want to really take the focus away from just paying less in premium 
to really how can we expand the value we give to others? And that might take away a subsidy for you for health insurance, but that's that's worth it if you're making more mm-hmm. money. All right, let's dive over into disability coverage. So what we want to think about with disability insurance is disability coverage covers your income. If you are no longer able to work, it provides compensation that covers that for you. So you basically have a position where you have income coming in, even though you're not able to work if it was due to a disability. A couple of things to think about is that 95% of disabling accidents and illnesses are not work related. Meaning if you are covered by workers compensation at an employer position, or you are the boss and you have workers comp, most of those cases where you people become disabled are not work-related, meaning workers' comp is not going to cover. And you want to have personally owned disability coverage that will pay for that. There's another statistic that says one in eight workers will be disabled five years or more during their working careers. And again, I don't bring this up to layer on scarcity and fear, but what we want to do is be prepared. If this were to happen and I lost my income due to not being able to work, how can I be in a position where I don't have to fear that lack of income? So we want to protect your cash flow at the source, and that's where you're making money. We want to protect that income. So there are a few different purposes to having disability coverage. Bruce, do you want to cover what some of those are? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. But before I get into this, you know, this is another thing uh, when we went into my my home insurance, when I had my house fire, and people say, well, you know, they're... Basically, people were telling me that, oh, be careful because they're 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 going to screw you. The insurance company is going to screw you, and you know, I mm-hmm. this is another case where people think that insurance companies do not pay out disability claims. Now, they pay out disability claims that are legitimate, and mm-hmm. right, I think we have to look at it from the insurance company's point of view. First of all. They are providing a service to people so that they are um, replacing income when it when there is a legitimate income loss. Unfortunately, Rachel, I or or fortunately, either way you look at this, I've done, you know, well over 4,400 of these interviews, and there's been a couple of times where um, people have indicated to me, in my opinion, that they 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 were committing. Uh, disability insurance fraud because I yeah. I could tell by their tax return that they were participating in another business that they were running for and, and being very profitable and yet they were they were allowing their spouse to do it uh, in other words it was okay. in their spouse's name so I think people n- need to understand that in, insurance fraud is real. And that when an insurance company looks at a person's situation, it's not because they're not trying to pay the claim, but they're trying to uphold the integrity of the process. And so when we look at purposes of of uh, disability, I think people just need to look at it not only from the insured person, but also from the insured uh, insurer's perspective. So the purpose of this... um, Loan disability or uh, for loan relief, we often see this if you have um, loans that you will get, that you will still be able to pay those loans with this. Uh, Buy-sell agreements and buyout coverage, you know, in a business, if uh, somebody that is normally performing a task that's very integral to your business, obviously, if they can't do that, revenue uh, has potential to go down. Mm-hmm. Personal disability, like I know you and I both have, is, yes. is to replace income. And I was just working with a client the other day, and he was asking for his wife, who is a, a, a OBGYN, who makes a very good living. And um, the insurance company was only offering 60% of replacement of his her income. And he's like, I want 100%. And I, and I said, mm-hmm. once again, you have to look at it from the insurance company's perspective. If you are insured up to 100% of your income, there is the not that you're going to do it, but there's more likelihood that fraud could be involved. Because if you are feeling poorly or you're 
you do have a slight injury, you you could just say, well, I'm going to just take my disability because I'm making the same whether I'm working or not. Um, so mm-hmm. the insurance sure. company has to do that to discourage fraud. Plus, in many cases, then when you're getting that 60%, then you could also apply for Social Security disability. Right, their disability right, program. And, mm-hmm. and get closer to the 80%, uh, about an 80 percentile. Uh, and then mm-hmm. finally, um, business overhead expenses, such as employee salaries, rent, and operational expenses. Yeah, so basically with disability, we want to think about if I wasn't able to work, what else might suffer as a result? And it's not just your own personal household. It could be your business. And and as Bruce was talking about with the buy-sell and the business overhead expense, if you are the critical the linchpin in your business. And if you not being there will cause sales to decline, well, that sales might be lower. So the revenue is down, but you still have those fixed expenses like rent and salaries that you need to maintain. And we want to be able to be in a position where we can keep the business afloat during the disability. So those are some different perspectives on the business and the personal side, why disability is relevant. So let's talk about a couple of the provisions within a plan. So One of the main things you want to recognize is that disability insurance coverage will either be set up for own occupation or any occupation. And you really want to make sure that you have own occupation. Now, what this means is that if you become disabled and you're no longer able to work in your specific occupation that you were in before the disability, you will receive compensation. This would be as opposed to any occupation. Let me give an illustration. If you are a surgeon and you become disabled and somehow are not able to use your eyesight or your um, fingers, your tactile ability the same way that you were as a surgeon, but you could go work as a a physician's assistant or maybe a receptionist in a doctor's office. Own occupation is the coverage you want because you're still going to be able to receive some disability compensation while you're employed in a similar capacity but not the same one that paid the, paid the higher income for you. And maybe you're now only working in a part-time role and you still can receive disability compensation. If you had any occupation coverage, then you would not receive disability payouts as long as you had some type of part-time work in any role. Is that clear, Bruce, you know, or is well, there yeah, any me, clarity you'd like yeah, to I can about? actually give you some real-life examples. Uh, I know a dentist who had uh, own occupation disability. And when you think about it from this perspective, he had to be kind of bent over and hunched over uh, every mm-hmm. day, and he developed um, some back problems. So now he can't continue to do the, the hunched over type of occupation, but he could become a salesperson who stands up every day or sits up straight every day. And and uh, so he could change to another occupation. So he's getting paid for that. And then he did change over to a salesperson for a company. Now, own occupation, though, in most cases, that actually costs more for, for the right. consumer. Um, any occupation um, is a, a little different because they're saying, you're disabled and you can't do anything. And that's how social security disability insurance is, is actually set up. It's not that you can't do what you're doing now is that you can't do anything um, at all to make money. So those are two different things from the, from the public and the private um, sector. You don't have the, uh, you don't have the ability to apply for own occupation with social security disability insurance. Right. So in your in your um, dentist example, so if he had had any OC or any occupation disability coverage and is no longer able to work as a dentist, but he can work in sales, he would not receive any disability payout. That is, that is so, correct. So that's just something to be aware of. And again, this comes back to is the insurance company, you know, are they my friend or are they against me? And we want to make sure we understand the terms of the coverage because if that dentist said, well, I had any occupation coverage and now I'm not getting anything and and my pay my income went from 250000 a year down to 80000 a year and I'm still able to work but only part-time in a sales role, well, now in that position, he's not getting any payout from the company. He could feel 
um, disenfranchised or frustrated towards the insurance company providing the disability income. But if it was set up in the provisions of the contract, that's something he needed to understand in advance. And so that's why it's really important to know what you're buying and buy what is most valuable to you, not just what's the cheapest. Mm -hmm. And the next part is the elimination period. And that simply means how long do you have to wait until they actually start paying a benefit? And think of it from the insurance company's perspective again. If it if they had to start paying the next day, then there would be more cost involved in this. If they, yes. they had to pay only after a year, there would be less cost for a variety of reasons. People get better. And unfortunately, in a, in a lot of long-term care situations, if it was a year from a stroke or a heart attack or something like that, the person may not even ever collect because they would die within that year. So the, so the mm-hmm. most common elimination period that I know of, Rachel, and I think you would agree, is 90 days. Right. So I would say that's probably the sweet spot in terms of price and then also the value correct. you're getting. And I think that is, and I think the reason that is, is because um, there are long-term care, I'm sorry, long-term disability and the that way, it, it it really has to be long term. So if somebody injures their knee, if if they went in and said, "Okay, I want to I want to apply for this," and then their knee is, you know, it recovers a lot sooner than what they thought it was going to, then it was actually costing the insurance company a processing fee, which which they then pass along to to the consumer. So that's why that's I'm why sure. you say there's that sweet spot for 90 days. The next part we, we yeah. always need to talk about is cost of living adjustments. And once again, I keep relating this back to me, but um, I was so grateful that when I, on my homeowner's insurance, I had a cost of living adjustment on my house for the increased cost of replacing the house. And it's the same thing. Um, uh, ones that do not uh, policies that do not have cost of living adjustments would be cheaper than uh, ones that do. And for people that don't understand what this means, let's say after the elimination period, ninety days, you get two thousand dollars a month in in two thousand eighteen. Um, but if you don't have a cost of living adjustment, you would you would get that if it was two thousand and thirty, you'd get two thousand dollars a month. So that mm-hmm. means once again, it would be cheaper for the insurance company. We we would recommend that cost of living adjustment is something that you should you know consider. Which then basically we're looking at okay, here's the added things that you can add on, but usually it's really advantageous for you to do so. And again, I really just want to reiterate this is not just all about the cost. We can improve the cost by doing certain things with the policy, but then we also want to make sure we're getting what we really want, which is going to be own occupation coverage. We do want to have a cost of living adjustment. And then um, Bruce, I think you were going to just go into the future increase rider as well. Yeah. And this is, um, this is helpful because as, as we increase our abilities, we may increase the need for additional income because we've increased our income. So buy more insurance as income increases without medical proof of insurability a lot of people would find that to be very, very um, important. I have another doctor friend who's an anesthesiologist, and he went from his initial pay of like $350,000 to just recently going to $600,000. So we have to, we have mm-hmm. to then say, okay, we, if we didn't have this increase rider on there, future increase rider on there, we would have to either – write another policy, or we would have to be, have the ability to change the current policy. So, uh, Or go back through underwriting. Correct. And if, if health status has changed, you might not be able to qualify for that. So something to think about in advance when you are healthy and you know you can qualify That's for exactly the coverage. Right. And then the residual riders that are partial benefits, if you can work, but not full time because you get tired or you're on, if you're on your feet and um, you have very arthritic knees or something like that, but you can stay on your feet for maybe four hours, but not eight hours. Uh, you could put a residual rider in on that so that you say, say, Hey, I'd be willing to work part-time. And then, of course, if you do that, then you wouldn't need as much coverage and 
that would be a way to also lessen cost. Absolutely. So let's recap disability really quick. A couple things to think about. Make sure you own it personally, not just having group coverage. If it is group coverage through an employer, you may not have portability of that. So if you left the employer, that is not going to necessarily transfer with you, and you may be left without disability coverage you thought you had. You want to be with a reputable company. You want to make sure the amount of coverage is something you're comfortable with. And then really think about how can I reduce the cost by extending the elimination period? And the way you do that is by focusing on having the savings, which is why cash is king. And it's really important to pay yourself first. So you have that buffer of savings and you say, I can afford to go now three, six months without income and still be okay. If you know you have that ability, you can reduce your cost by extending that elimination period. And again, we've seen up to maybe 180 days, but sweet spot is probably about 90. And then um, that's really what we're, we're wanting to cover with disability. Let's jump over briefly into life insurance. And this is not going to be uh, an entire overview because there's just simply too much with life insurance to cover all today. But here's a couple things we want to think about with life insurance. Life insurance is one of those things that will cover a actual event in your life. Now, last I checked, every human, the probability of dying is 100%. Yes, so far. Now, we don't know right. when that is. Right. There hasn't we haven't solved that yet medically and that would be interesting if we did, but I don't think it's going to happen. So, all of the other insurances are covering an if event. A life insurance policy is covering a win event. It's something that is guaranteed to happen. And so we want the coverage to be there at that time. Let's look at understanding the basics of life insurance. So there's two pure forms of life insurance. And really at either end of the spectrum, we have term insurance or we have whole life insurance. Let's talk about term for a quick moment. So you have the amount of coverage, which is your death benefit. And this is the amount that's going to pay out to your heirs when you die. There's the premium that you pay for that coverage. That's the cost, if you will. And then there's the term. And this is the length of the contract. And usually it's between 10 or 20 or usually 30 years. Now, if you're still alive at the end of the term, everything you paid in has become a cost to you and you get nothing from it. So you don't get your money back. You don't get the death benefit paid out. It's just simply a cost that you walk away from knowing that it was a cost in your life. So when you're looking at that, it's easy to think about, well, term insurance can be cheaper by most standards when you are young and healthy. However, if you were going to then live through that term, say you had a 30-year term policy, you started when you were age 30, now you're age 60, and you want to put that coverage back in force for another 20 or 30 years, that is going to be extensively higher in terms of the cost. And looking at, I don't have numbers in front of me, maybe Bruce, you're more familiar with this, but looking at the cost over a lifespan, if you were to insure with term insurance throughout your entire life, that cost by, by the end is just extremely high. It becomes cost prohibitive and you would have ha had to pay in more in premium throughout your whole lifetime than you're going to get out in a yeah, death benefit. I, I would agree with that. The thing about it is though, term insurance is very helpful in certain situations and Absolutely. The, but the thing that people they don't understand the ramifications. I just I just ran some term rates for a 53-year-old and he wanted $200,000 to cover his uh only a $60,000 mortgage re remaining on his house and then he wanted uh, uh up to $120,000 just in case he would die in the next 4 years cuz his his daughter's starting college. And so we ran the we ran that, and for the, we ran a uh, twenty year term uh, because he wanted to um, he wanted to look at it for twenty years because he's fifty three, and um, you know it's covering until seventy three, and it was about a hundred dollars a month, so that's twelve hundred dollars. But then it actually shows this on the illustration at year twenty one when he turns seventy three it suddenly goes from $1,200 a month. I'm sorry, $1,200 $1, a, year, a year, thank you, to $12,000 a year. And, and mm -hmm. I've seen that too, but that number is powerful yeah. that you're sharing. That's, that's yeah, a and he, and it continues to increase every year from that point on because it, it essentially becomes a one-year renewable term 
from that point on. And so which then the cost increases every single year that's if it's exactly right. So then we had a discussion and we said okay, you know, if you take the 1200 and you take uh multiply that by 20 years how much is that going to be? That's going to be $24,000. Now, to, to take $24,000 to cover $200,000 in his mind was, was something that he was comfortable with. But then we did some other cash flow strategies and said, if you could turn that into a permanent insurance and get it and get the same coverage, but still had access to some of that money, would you like to look at that? So now we're comparing and contrasting permanent insurance for him and uh, only because he he had no idea how much the coverage was going to change uh, from twelve hundred to twelve thousand dollars um so there's a lot packed into what you just shared there and i want to bring out one really specific thing so in this case the original 20-year policy that would have cost him twenty four thousand dollars The insurance company is looking at his likelihood of dying. And I know that sounds like a really morbid thought, but the insurance company has to have an actuarial grasp on how much exactly to charge for premium. And the younger you are and the healthier you are, the less likely of dying you are. You know, probably not any surprise to anyone listening. So when you are least costly to insure, that's when the insurance company is going to charge less. Now, there's a statistic that shows only about 1% of term policies actually end up paying out, which what this means is that the likelihood of him passing away within those 20 years is relatively little, which means that $24,000 that went out every single, well, total, total over those 20 years is a pure cost if he doesn't die within those 20 years. And ultimately, we all want to live longer. I don't want to have to die in order to make financial sense out of a policy. Yeah, he uh he was very um he was very shocked at this, which oftentimes I find clients are how much it actually increases because he was actually thinking. See, Rachel, you're still pretty young. You don't think necessarily about your mortality in a in a in a concrete way, but I I've been in this industry long enough where younger people say, well, you know, I'll term in case something happens. As the older you get, you realize. Oh, something will happen. That's that's a little bit that's a little bit of right. a different way of thinking. In case something happens, mm-hmm. to when you get into your fifties, you you're 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 realizing oh something will actually happen. Um, oh, so, sure. term insurance is just the purest form of insurance. I mean, what they're saying is we need to get twenty four thousand dollars. We don't think you're going to die. But that $24,000 is not just going to protect the 200 that we have at risk for you, but everybody else in your risk class um, that has insurance with us. So so then when somebody, they don't right. know how many people are going to, or I'm sorry, they, they know how many people out of 1,000 or 10,000 are going to die if a 53-year-old gets insurance. They just don't know which one of those 53-year-old are going to die the very next year. And so they would take all right. the premiums that come in to pay off the death benefits. And uh, unfortunately or fortunately, mm-hmm. uh, once again, I don't know which way to present this. We have had to do death claims. And it's it's both sad, mm-hmm. but also reassuring with the family that here is a check. And here's a great example. We did a permanent to get for our audience to understand. Once you receive that check, the insurance company now has has received the risk of you dying. And so the premium check. The premium check, yes. When the so I tell people all the time, check. does it mm-hmm. make sense that as soon as he gives me the first $100 check, if he dies on the way home, the insurance company will pay $200,000. That doesn't sound like it makes a whole lot of, a lot of sense for the insurance company. No, but it's the best rate of return you could possibly get on your money. It's just not the life circumstance you want to have. That's right. But the reason the insurance company knows that is they've checked him out and the actuaries know that the the possibility that happened is slight enough. And that's how they have actually calculated that it will cost $100 a month. Absolutely. 
we did have one person uh, several years ago that wrote a check for $40,000 for a permanent life insurance of, of a little over a million dollars, and then in nine months died of brain cancer. Oh, my goodness. And so that was disheartening because we were good. We, we had known the, the family for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but it was also nice to, to give them a check for a little over $1 million to try to replace some of the loss in the family. Mm-hmm. But that was probably the most extreme I had ever seen from a, a death benefit situation where 40000 turned into a little over $1 million. Um, Wow. I can. That, my, my point is in telling that is those insurance companies do pay. So I mean, that's the way that they have to figure out the costs involved to run their business. Oh, absolutely. And what a challenging and tragic situation for the family. And yet that reassurance of knowing that there was that backstop to at least make sure that you're financially okay, then they're able to recover emotionally without that financial strain and burden. So let's then um, just contrast that with whole life insurance real briefly as we're getting close to the, the top of the hour in a podcast here. But with whole life, you have the primary difference between whole life and term is that whole life lasts your whole life. There's no end or termination of a policy. So what happens is that you have the duration is different. And then it also builds kind of like equity in a house, you build equity or cash value is the actual term in the policy where you have access to a portion of the death benefit. And you're able to use this money during your lifetime. So that could be for emergencies or for opportunities. And there's a lot of different pieces about that, but you can access that money without having to qualify for it. You don't have to apply or, or anything. You have access to your cash value because it belongs to you. So with that, you have a guaranteed premium that you put in, you have a guaranteed death benefit, there's a guaranteed cash value. And what happens then is the cost of insurance we were talking about before is averaged over the span of your whole entire life, usually out through age 121, as the policies are now. And that is averaged over the course of your entire life. So you have a set premium and the premium doesn't increase. So what happens is that you look at the the beginning of a policy may seem to be expensive in terms of more expensive than a term policy. But when we're comparing the two, we're getting access to something that we can use and something that will for sure pay out at some point as long as we don't cancel the policy. Bruce, is there any clarification you want to bring around that? Well, I just think, first of all, I want people to realize that um, you, you had mentioned, and I don't think you meant to say this, you said there's really no end to the policy. I There is. When you it's, die. It's Well, not only that, but, and I know it's hard for you, once again, as a younger person to realize this, when, they're, when it goes to, to age 121, right. the, the contract literally means if you live to 121, the policy is is endowed, is what they call it, right? And, and they Absolutely. will pay they will pay it off whether you are dead or not. Yes, and, I did. Yeah. I, I do know that. So yes, thank you for clarifying that because I, that could have been confusing to somebody listening. So yes, and, it absolutely does. And you're absolutely right. Basically, well, not basically. It's like this. Bob Murphy, um, Doctor Robert Murphy, who we had on the podcast, he did a study for us. And whole life is is basically just taking the term insurance costs and spreading them out through the whole life. That's exactly what they do. It's no, it's not magic. It's not mis- mysterious. So when you do that, and you do it out over the whole life, they take some of those costs from an eighty year old and they push it into a tw- a twenty five year old. So mm-hmm. the so the cost for a twenty five year old would be higher for a whole life insurance product than it would be for a term. Why? Because they've taken some of those term costs for an age 80 or 90 year old and, and average them over their whole life. So of course it's going to, why do they and, do Why do they do that? Because they know they're on the hook for your whole life. Yes. And I was just going to bring that to the forefront. Yes, they absolutely know that they will pay out. So this isn't a, if the insurance company pays out, as long as you uphold your end of the contract, they will uphold theirs, which means they will pay out a claim at some point when you die, or they will pay out the entire policy at the age of endowment of age 121. Mm-hmm. So 
it's not purely a cost from that perspective. If you think of a cost, you think I'm paying something and getting nothing. That is absolutely a cost. But when you pay something in and you get more dollars out than you put in, that's not entirely a cost. Now, at that point, we can look at what is the return on investment? What is the difference between what I put in and what I get out? And for most policies that stay in in effect over a span of time, you are absolutely getting more out than you're putting in. And I'm not sure, Bruce, maybe you want to clarify that a little bit. Well, I think uh, over my career, you know, people have said the, the very common thing is, whole life insurance costs too much, or I should just buy term and invest the difference. And, you know, if that's your idea of doing things and you're well-educated, maybe you should do that thing, do that. Maybe you should buy term and invest the difference because you're a gambler and you want to have investments. But I always tell people, it's funny, the older I my clients get along the way, the more they actually value life insurance. But the problem is, is when, as they get older, if they haven't put that in place, then they're paying at the higher premium amounts uh, along along the way. With Absolutely. The, with the whole life insurance is there's guarantees. A lot of times people don't realize that you can design them specifically for what you're trying to accomplish. If you want a higher death benefit, great. If you want to pull the death benefit down, and make it lower so that you have more cost of insurance or less cost of insurance and more going to the uh, the insurance company so they pay a higher interest and dividend so your cash value grows higher that you can access. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, access it tax-free. And we didn't even mention this, both term and whole life insurance death benefits go to the heirs tax-free, which, yes. which brings up another. I know I throw these real-life examples all the time. No, that's but good. But I was talking to a, uh, a friend in a, a group I belong to, Medici, a media space, and he was, he was saying that he, does, he doesn't want life insurance because it doesn't actually do anything for him. Of course, we did a whole segment on, you know, it actually frees you up to live life, but he said it didn't do anything for him. He'd rather have his stocks and mutual funds grow to well over 600000 rather than have a $600,000 term life insurance that goes to his kids. And and I said, well, what is really the difference? What are you doing with that 600000 And he said, well, I'm building it up so that I have peace of mind, but I'm just going to leave it to my children. And I, and I, mm-hmm. said, I said to him, so really, it doesn't really do anything for you also, just like the term death benefit doesn't do anything for you. And he said, well, it gives me peace of mind. He goes, I see where you're going with this, but it gives me peace of mind. And I said, well, what's it, what's it give you peace of mind for? And he said, well, it gives me peace of mind that I have that money if I want to ex- access, access it. I said, does it give you peace of mind for your, your children and your, and your wife? And he said, yes. I said, well, you could combine the two and you could have a death benefit that has the cash value And that would give you both peace of mind and you would have the death benefit pass along tax free. And he goes, you know, I I never I never had anybody really explain it to me like that. And that's good. And so I think really what you have to look at is what are you trying to accomplish? We Mm -hmm. and just like a, uh, a priest I knew once told me. There's no, he had been to many deathbeds over his career. He said, Bruce, I've discovered there are no atheists on deathbeds. Mm. I've also discovered that the older people get, people want life insurance to be in place when they die. Well, we have to, well, we have to understand that there's a great peace of mind for people to understand the value of life insurance just like the value of health insurance and disability insurance, because it makes you a more productive person in society because you have that peace of mind. And, and finally, um, as we go, there are other things. There's index universal life. There's variable universal life. Um, there's regular universal life. But these, these particular life insurance are hybrids, and really their interest rate or securities driven. And Mm -hmm. to me, they're more investments than they are actual life insurance. 
So we like to yes. look at the two forms of term and whole life mostly. And um, if a person wants to do the other ones, we actually explain everything about it. We don't we don't actually sell this. If somebody wants it, we have people that will sell it to them. But uh, we just don't believe we would want to mix the investment aspect with your insurance. If you want to do investments, we can do investments, but we do not want to mix them personally. I think you have a kind of the yes. same feeling about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, just to clarify, because it might have come across in an interesting way, we actually do sell health insurance. I mean, we actually do sell life insurance term and whole. What we don't do is usually the indexed or variable or indexed universal life that are kind of those middle hybrid type of products. So I just wanted to clarify yeah, that we do I, sell term and whole. Yeah, I can see where I, I maybe confuse people on that one. No problem. I just wanted to make sure that our intentions are clear. And so as we then look at how do I get the best value when it comes to life insurance? Well, don't just look at the cost because that will be very diluting. What you want to look at is what do I want to have in place and make sure you understand the coverage. We also would recommend starting with the maximum coverage you can get looking at your human life value and starting there in terms of how much death benefit you want to put in place then looking at how much you have that you want to have a place to store your cash. How much cash flow are you looking to be able to grow and thinking about putting that towards a whole life policy and then thinking about how do I not just put money into term, which is just a cost to me if the death benefit doesn't pay out, but the other side of that is that you want to maximize your insurability. And the best way to do that is to put it in place young. And as Bruce was talking about, a lot of young people don't value having life insurance in place. But think about where you're going to be in 40 or 50 years from now and what you're going to want to have in place then. And if you lock something in now, you're going to have the ability to be insured at lower rates and at your current health status before you have health concerns that might arise throughout your life. So just a couple of things to, to think about there. We also would recommend having your term insurance be convertible. So a lot of times somebody might start with some whole and a lot of term Make sure it's convertible so that you have the ability to move that over into a whole life policy when your cash flow substantiates that and makes it available for you in your life. Yeah. So, Bruce, I think we – do we want to go ahead and wrap up here? I think that would be great. I think um, we, we've uh, kind of given that 10,000-foot overview. And once again, I oh, want yeah. to emphasize that, you know, this is for – we're trying to help business owners increase cash flow by looking at the best value for insurance, but also – it's not just about the bottom line. It's about having a peace of mind so you can be very productive in your business. But it's also about the your your personal economy side, uh, your personal lines of credit, not just your business lines. Of, I'm not not lines of credit, lines of insurance, mm -hmm. and not just your business lines of insurance. And then anybody that's not a business owner, uh, if you think like a business owner, so that you have accounts payable, and that's the income you have coming in, and accounts receivable, um, or, and accounts payable, if you look at both of those sides um, and run your personal economy like a business, I think you would you would be enlightened and uh, you would stay on top of things a lot, a lot better. Oh, absolutely. So as we wrap here, this has been a long show today. Thank you for bearing with us. I hope it was valuable to you as you're thinking through how do I make the best insurance decisions so that I know I'm not spending extra money, but I have the coverage that I really want. And our heart is to empower you in that. Now, there's absolutely no way that we can advise through a podcast. So I want to be really clear and specific. Your needs are going to be different than your neighbors or your best friends or someone next to you based on your current circumstance and where you're going and what your goals are. And so if you have maybe thought differently about some of your insurance coverages, we encourage you to reach out to us and ask for a personalized strategy that works for you in your position. And so the way you would do that is you would email us at hello, H-E-L-L-O, at themoneyadvantage.com. And you can request a free financial picture conversation and we'll help you find ways to control more of the money that you make, protect it, and then make more. And so that's something that's available to you as our listeners. And we also want to let you know that at themoneyadvantage.com, you can get the show notes from this podcast and any links that we mentioned as well. So thank you for being with us today on this show. And we hope that was valuable to you. Remember, success leaves clues. So follow the successful few not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. 
To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid dash capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.